hope you have your Bibles with you. If you do, I want to hear it. I know you've got apps, so just make a papery kind of sound turn in the book of Revelation to chapter 3. Can you believe, believe it? We've made it to chapter 3. Uh, what is this? Week 7 or 8 in Revelation. We're finally in chapter 3, so maybe before the Lord returns, we'll be finished this book, and that will be good. But uh, we're taking it, we're digesting it in chunks as we go through it, and uh, I hope that you're finding life as God speaks through this important message to the church of 2,000 years ago, which speaks to us today. As we've been saying, as we've gone through this book, one of the things that's so important, I'm scared every Sunday when I preach because um, handling the word of God is about the most important thing anybody can do. And I hope you're in it regularly too and that you feel the weight of its worth and holiness and value. And um, there are several books in the Bible that are especially intimidating and perhaps Revelation is at the top of that list. So what are we doing in this book? I don't know, but please pray for me. And just so that you know that I'm not out to lunch just making up things as I go, there's a lot of work that goes into considering various viewpoints and things that sort of continue to rise to the surface appearing to be most accurate or helpful in understanding what the message meant to the first hearers of this letter about 2,000 years ago. And when we understand what it meant to them, then there's a great opportunity for us to understand what it means to us today. I don't usually do this, um, but here's several books that are helping me through this series. There are so many others that I should probably be into, but there's commentaries, uh, a Spirit-Filled Life Bible, um, written with the help of some of our Pentecostal scholars, New Testament and its world, um, Eugene Peterson writes a good book on Revelation. N.T. Wright is really good. If you're ever looking for a really helpful, approachable sort of commentary, like a devotional commentary, a fellow named N.T. Wright writes this series called For Everyone. So he does a little book for each book of the New Testament. So this is Revelation for Everyone. You can look that up on Amazon, pick up copies as you're doing your own devotional study in different parts of the Bible. Daryl Johnson writes an excellent book on the book of Revelation. So I... I'm indebted to the work of all these people, helping us understand what did Revelation mean to the first people so that we can understand how it speaks to us now. Clay, thanks so much for bringing this up, or bringing that down, thank you so much. So Revelation chapter three, as we begin today, I want us to be reminded of why this book even exists. It's most likely written by the Apostle John. He's probably in his late 80s. He's probably writing around 96 AD. And the early church is experiencing pressure and persecution as the Roman Empire continues to press its thumb down on anything that will resist against it, speaking a message against it in any way. And so there's rapid persecution. In about three years earlier, before Revelation was written, it's estimated 40,000 Christians were martyred by Domitian in a single year. So Christians in the early church are nervous they're scared, they're feeling pressured, and they're feeling sort of bullied into two possible directions, compromise being one, and complacency being the other. There were a few communities where the persecution was not as rampant, and in some of those communities, some of the Christians in those churches would have felt like, you know what, Rome ain't all that bad. And uh, given all the other gods that we see being worshipped, if we just have to sort of pay some homage to Caesar and say he's Lord and King too, we can keep a Jesus idea on the shelf too. And so they'd be a little bit, you know, there'd be compromise in that, there'd be complacency, and like, meh, maybe we shouldn't take this Jesus thing as seriously as some of those radicals who are dying for it are. And so by the Spirit, John has to address this, and he does it in the most profound way. 
piece of apocalyptic literature that's prophetic, meaning it's declarative messages from God, kind of written in beautiful symbolic code language so that when the letter was carried from Patmos, the island that John was on, and it was screened by Roman authorities, they just thought, this sounds like children's material. There's all these dragons and beasts. What does this mean? But when it was heard by the first Christians, they knew exactly what it meant because the apocalyptic language, the symbolism spoke to them. They understood that God was winning the day through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as threatening as Rome or any other superpower in the world might ever seem, God's already won, and the role of the church is to implement his victory throughout history until he returns. So, Revelation in a paragraph, why is it written? You saw it already on the screen, here it is. The Revelation was written so that followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age by the way, before we finish this paragraph, do any of you feel pressures in culture? <laughs> Have any of you identified some of the gods of our age? The number one god of our age appears to be the autonomous self. But aside from that, sex, money, power, all kinds of things, image, become the gods of our day. So interestingly, spoke one way 2,000 years ago, might actually speak to us today, hey? So that Christians, followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age could see what is really going on or actually going on behind the scenes so that they could see who the Lord and Savior of the world really is and settle once and for all who their allegiance, trust, and worship ultimately and absolutely belongs to. That's Revelation in a paragraph. If you want it in one word or two words actually, it's this, behold Jesus. And if I can tack on two other words that sort of are the response to beholding Jesus, worship. If you've really encountered Jesus, you are welcomed into a life of robust worship. Worship that's so much more than just what we sing or do on a Sunday. It's a lifestyle of giving ourselves to the Lord and in service and love to one another. And then the other response to beholding Jesus is witness. Um, Island Farms ice cream, anybody like that? I heard some, oh, we should have made it an ice cream sundae. I shouldn't have said that because now you're mad at me. Why is it not an ice cream sundae? Um, Island Farms, now they used to, ha it used to be called Moose Tracks. I'm not sure why they've changed it. They've kind of rebranded here. Fudge Tracks, boy, there's a response. Moose Tracks, amen? Yeah. Amen, okay, it's especially this side of the room. Moose Tracks over here, do we need to tell you about it? Um, I remember the first time I had Moose Tracks ice cream. I had to tell people about it. I couldn't just keep this information for myself. I even told a cashier about it once. I was like, oh, is this good? This is good, yes, you've not had this. Do you have a peanut butter allergy? Okay, you must have this. When you've truly encountered Jesus for who he is, one of the natural overflows of that is this, well, I want others to experience this kind of hope and joy and peace and truth and love and life, amen? So what is Revelation? Behold Jesus. Right now, through the summer, we're going through the seven letters to the seven churches, which appear in the opening chapters of the book. Most of the churches receive uh, an affirmation and a correction and then sort of a word of praise and encouragement. Some only receive correction. Some only receive affirmation. Today, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 3 at the church of Sardis. I actually don't remember hearing Bible pages, so if you haven't yet turned there, go there. If you're there, just, just make your sound. Who was clearing their throat? It's as if they were trying to cover up that they didn't have a paper sound to offer. Um, okay, a few things as you're turning to chapter 3 about Sardis. At the time of this writing, 96 AD, 
There's anywhere from 60,000 to 100,000 people that are living in this city. It's a very historic city. It's existed for several, several centuries. And um, it first was built up on an Acropolis. So, you know, so this sort of mountain ledge. Um, walls were able to be established around it. A gate um, was established or, for main entry. And there were several stories about how secure this city was because of how it was nestled safely up on this mountain ledge. We'll say a little bit more about that a little later on. Of course, at the time of John's writing, people in Sardis were worshiping Caesar because they had to. Um, they didn't want to die. But it was maybe not running as rampantly as other cities that received letters. There was a main temple in Sardis, and it was a temple to a god named Artemis, who was the god of the hunt and fertility, so it was a very important god to the people of the area. And in 96 AD, that temple was definitely functioning. However, although it had been built some three or 400 years earlier, it still was not completed. So worship is happening, sacrifices, no doubt pagan rituals of all kinds, are going on there, but the building is not yet finished. And I think that might be in the minds of all the residents in Sardis. There was an important wool industry, and we learned that in Sardis, fashion mattered. In fact, it was quite an affluent community. There was a lot of wealth there. Many people found themselves living quite comfortably in Sardis. Of the seven churches that received a, a letter, in the Revelation, Sardis very likely was the largest of the churches. Probably the other six churches knew about the Sardis church. It had a reputation. It was active. It was growing. I'm sure they had exciting events going on. They had good organization, good administration. They were clear on their doctrine. There were services, maybe even multiple services, who knew how they did it in their homes, but they were gathering together regularly. Maybe they had a kid's camp, we don't know. They would have celebrated communion very regularly. There would have been baptisms regularly in the church of Sardis. So you can imagine what kind of church community. It sounds like it's booming, sounds like it's alive and happening. If you move into Sardis, you want to be part of the church there. With this in mind, let's begin reading what the text says today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that by your spirit and through your word, you speak to our hearts. Right now, we open our hearts to you. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. Would you open our eyes to the risen, living Lord Jesus Christ? And would you move in our hearts by your Holy Spirit? Amen. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Now, I don't want you to get tripped up on that. God doesn't have seven specific, distinct, unique spirits. Some of you are like, well, how does this work with the Trinity? Do I have to do math here? Is it seven times three? Is it 21? No. Um, seven, as we've talked about throughout the book of Revelation, means complete. And so it's referring here to the fact that God's spirit is absolute. It's complete. There's fullness in his spirit. There's nothing lacking in his spirit. And so the picture that we're being brought of Jesus here is that in one hand, he's holding seven, the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. We learned earlier 
in Revelation that the seven stars, um, certainly to the locals, they understood that maybe that might represent the whole of the cosmos. But Revelation also specifically says that represents the seven leaders or the angels, the messengers of the churches. So in a way, these seven stars represent the seven churches. They're in Jesus' hand. And then he says this to them. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. And remember all the things we mentioned about the church in Sardis? It does sound like a church that's happening, doesn't it? And then the shocking words of Jesus. But... You are dead. Whoa. What do you think if you were sitting in one of the house gatherings in the city of Sardis and you were a believer there and a scroll from Patmos has been brought to you. It's coming along from church to church to church in that group of seven churches and you're hearing the messages to the other churches and now you're hearing, ah, the there's a message to us here in Sardis. And you might be thinking about, well, hey, we got a lot of good things going on in the life of our church. And Jesus acknowledges, hey, you seem to have this reputation for being alive. You know, they're probably, okay, okay, yes, thank you. You noticed our kids' camp. Thank you, Jesus. But you are dead. How do you feel when you're sitting there? Shocked, no doubt. And imagine the other six churches who are no doubt familiar with Sardis and what's going on there. And they're thinking, I thought that was the biggest church of, you know, in our fellowship of churches here. Dead? Dead. Jesus has something important to speak to this church. And the good news is it speaks to us today and it helps us today too. Verse 2. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Do the people in Sardis... Do they have anything in their mind that they think about that they see might maybe regularly in town that's not complete? I think they're like, oh, you know what? Remember how the temple to Artemis isn't complete? Jesus is noticing that there's something in us that's not complete. Verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and what you've heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yeah, you do have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Remember the wool industry? He's speaking fashion language to them here. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. To the one who overcomes, they will be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name from the book of life, but will acknowledge their names before my Father and his angels. To the one who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, including Comox Pentecostal Church in 2023. Amen. There are three main issues that we must acknowledge are going on in Sardis. Here's the first one. First issue is this. They were concerned with keeping up with appearances. We know that this was an affluent town. You know, there was a lot of wealth and comfort there. We know about the fashion industry and the wool. <laughs> And so it is clear that Jesus is addressing something. You seem to be building yourselves up out of reputation and image. You seem to be a little bit preoccupied with how you measure up against others. And you're disregarding things that are far more important within. Second issue in Sardis was a false sense of security. 
Jesus speaks of their reputation of being alive. Now this is interesting that we begin to understand that there was a false sense of security for the church of Sardis. Remember how I said that it was a historic city, it had existed for many centuries, it was originally built up on uh, an apocalypse, uh, not apocalypse, that's the wrong Greek, apocrypha, apocalypse, acropolis, no, you know what it is. There's the Greek restaurant in Campbell River. Acropolis, thank you. <laughs> it's built up there on the mountain originally. It was very, very secure. 600 years before the writing uh, of this letter, King Cyrus, Persian king, is trying to take over as much territory as he possibly can and comes up to what was ancient Sardis. Now, it's nestled up on the mountain. There's a wall around it. There's a gate up there, and they're stuck. We can't take this city down. It was a very secure city. And so they wait around it for quite some time, trying to weigh out, do we stay here and figure out how to attack, or do we just have to move on? And this will sort of be an outlying city that just remains independent of what the Persian Empire was trying to accomplish. And so they waited, and they waited. And one day, one of the Persian soldiers noticed a soldier up in Sardis whose helmet fell off and tumbled down the mountainside. And he watched the soldier find a particular route down the mountain and he watched how he got back up. And so he reported it, and in the night, they went up that route and attacked from within and defeated the city. 300 years later, uh, a fellow named Antiochus was on a mission taking over the world, and in the same kind of way, finally found a way to break in through what seemed to be impenetrable walls. And he found a way up, sent somebody up who opened up the gates and they were able to attack from within and from outside. So this was Sardis. They felt quite secure in themselves except for those two sort of glaring memories from hundreds of years earlier. They had this sense of security, but they were aware, if we're not careful, we're actually vulnerable. Daryl Johnson says this, the history of Sardis teaches that we are never more in danger than when feeling comfortable and at ease. I think that spoke, the history of Sardis and the words of Jesus spoke to a condition going on in the life of the church there. A little bit of complacency had set in. There's not as much record of intense pressure and persecution going on in Sardis as we read about in other communities at the time. And so there was sort of this ability afforded to the Christians there to engage of a Christianity of comfort and convenience. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Have you ever heard of a Christianity that's comfortable and convenient? Could it be that we find ourselves living in a similar kind of moment right now? For the Sardis church, their complacency was built upon their reputation that they thought they had of being alive. It was built upon their own works. It was built upon what they could do. Their security was built on what they could do, not what Jesus had done for them. And Jesus, through this letter, is pointing things out to them. Listen, you're not alive. You're dead. Wake up. 
In the Greek language there, what's, what's translated in, in the NIV into wake up also means watch, like keep watch, be alert. And I'm sure for the Christians in Sardis, they were thinking of some of those guards who were atop in those ancient defeats and watching and thinking, ah, we're, we're just very secure. We can go to sleep at night. We'll be fine. There's no way that they can take down our city. And so they rested on their reputation of security and they were vulnerable, exposed, and overtaken and defeated. And Jesus is saying, hey, in your church, it could be the very same. In your own faith, it could be the very same. You might feel very secure in the things of faith because of what you've done. You might feel very secure in your faith because of the reputation of the church family or denomination or whatever you belong to. You're like, well, I'm connected to this sort of spiritual heritage, so therefore I'm secure. Hmm. You might feel secure for this or that or any other reason, but friends, if your sense of faith security is not grounded in Jesus alone and what he's done for you, you're dead and you need to wake up. Third issue in Sardis, what Jesus had actually called them to was incomplete. He said, your works are not yet complete. It's not entirely clear what wasn't complete. I like, uh, Daryl Johnson suggests there may have been three things that this could have meant. The first being, maybe this church struggled to finish what they started. They had great intentions, but they actually didn't follow through with everything that they meant to. Maybe they became content with mediocrity. Secondly, could have been that they actually just got busy doing things Jesus hadn't called them to. And they got those things done, and he's like, but you're not focusing on the main thing I'm calling you to. And it's clear through Revelation, the main thing he's calling them and every church to is him. Other churches had lost their first love. They might have had impressive and robust other aspects of their faith. But Jesus says, that doesn't matter if you can do well in that, but you miss me in this. You've missed everything if you miss Jesus. may have been that the church of Sardis was good at churchy things. Lots of churchy things. But was Jesus at the center? Friends, for every church, this is important to allow this passage to speak to us and reevaluate what do we do and why do we do it? When we were talking as a staff earlier this week about the camp for kids that was happening, as I was dialoguing a little bit, and of course I had this message in mind, I was dialoguing with Pastor Trevor, as he was preparing to lead, I was dialoguing with our staff, and I said, we need to remember that this camp, although it's a kid's day camp, is not for kids. We don't do kids' camps for kids. We do kids' camps for Jesus. Everything that we do as a church family must be put through the grid of, why do we do this? And if it's not connected to Jesus and bringing his message and ministry into the everyday stuff of life here in the Comox Valley and around the world, should we actually be doing it? Is it worth time and resource and energy? We have to seriously question it. Could be that the Sardis church had built up a great reputation. They were active. They were growing. But they were missing Jesus along the way. And they were incomplete in the most important aspect of their faith. Remember, the message of Revelation is, behold Jesus, and the first response is worship. It could be that the Sardis church was failing in worship. They were doing works, but they had missed the heart, Jesus himself. Maybe it was the third 
thing, Johnson suggests. Maybe the incomplete thing was that the church actually was missing its essential purpose. If the first purpose of the church is worship, behold Jesus, and then we worship, what was the second? It witness. In Revelation, churches are called lampstands, which have what at the top of a lampstand? A flame. And what is the flame to do? What is a lampstand to do? Bring light to darkness. What if they were failing to do that? What if they were busying themselves with all kinds of wonderful, inward-focused Christian activity, forgetting that Jesus had called them to be a light in the midst of darkness, to bear witness to his name, his word, his message, his ministry to Sardis and beyond? Maybe they had forgotten, and he considered it incomplete. Perhaps they had become casual about the lost, and Jesus needed to address it. So it's clear, there were some issues that had to be dealt with in the church of Sardis. As I read through this text several times this past week, three things stood out to me as especially sobering to have to give attention to. In fact, I felt like if I don't give time at least acknowledging these three things with you, I'd be doing a disservice. I'd be sort of glazing over the hardest parts of this message to sort of just give you the feel-good stuff. And so I hope you can handle it, but we have to address three sobering things in this text. First is this. You and I can appear to be vibrant Christians, but actually be spiritually dead. Secondly, Jesus can blot your name out. Ooh, like he, he mentions this in the text. Those who are faithful, he will not blot their name out. We learn through the rest of the revelation that there's sort of this idea of a book, a book of life, the Lamb's book of life, to which Jesus writes our names in, those who have decided to loyally give our allegiance only to Jesus Christ. We're in his book of life. But here he's acknowledging, listen, if you wish to choose a different path and go your own way or the way of Rome or the way of whatever, I guess I'll have to take you out of the book. In ancient Greek cities, um, evidently it was common in many of these ancient communities for there to be a city registry. And for some of the cities, if they wanted to sort of boast in the best possible reputation as a city, if they had any criminals that had committed serious offenses deserving death, in some of these Greek cities, what they would do is they'd actually go to their city registry and blot that individual's name out of the registry before they were killed for their crime. That way, they weren't killing one of their own citizens. (laughs) And they were like, wow, we've got a very good city. There's not a lot of crime here. We did have to take care of that outsider, but they're not in our book. So there was a bit of an awareness for the church in Sardis of this idea of cities with books and registries. And you could belong to it, but you could also be blotted out to it. In Sardis, in fact, some records would suggest that because there was the vibrant wool industry and people obviously cared about fashion there, um, if you were caught wearing soiled garments... There was the threat of your name being blotted out of the book of Sardis. So interesting that Jesus would use language like that. He knew how to speak to them. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus knows what you understand and he finds ways to speak to your heart? 
as he was to the church in Sardis. It's sobering, isn't it? And I'm not, when I was praying this morning for you and for us, I, I was praying specifically at one point for these three thoughts. I don't want to leverage these into like some sort of weird guilt, manipulative fear thing to generate some sort of response out of you. So that's one extreme that I suppose as a pastor I could try to indulge in to get some sort of reaction out of people, but I, and I, so I want to avoid that. But the other opposite is equally as evil, is to avoid it altogether and not say this is possible. Some of you in this room might have thought, well, I grew up in a Christian family. That's all I need. Or, well, I'm part of this church. I go to a small group. I, I don't do bad things. I have a good character. I could give you a reference. Does Jesus need a character reference? No, you need a savior. You need someone to rescue your soul and your whole life. And only Jesus, none of your best works will satisfy and so today, friend, we have to pay attention to the fact that Jesus mentioned something hard for us to hear, but it's true. Your name could be blotted out. But if you rely on Jesus as the only way you could ever have hope, life, and rescue, your name's in. Now, the third sobering thing that we learn from this text is Jesus may not acknowledge some of our names before the Father. Jesus had to speak it plainly to the church in Sardis. Listen, if changes aren't made, it tells me that you don't want in, you don't want to stay with me, you want your own way, or you're comfortably deceived. So I guess the question is, like if, if the church in Sardis had had a real experience with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they had a real experience with the presence of God Almighty, his spirit dwelling within and coming upon them, how did they drift away from that to a point where they were now on the verge of being out altogether? How does this happen? Deception. I think they were lulled. Jesus uses this language in the NIV translates it. Wake up. They were lulled comfortably into a slumber. Um, I'm going to show you a video here. And this is not a perfect parallel. But I think it just helps. Some of you remember this scene you've read or you've watched uh, the Narnia series, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Tumnus sees Lucy Pevensey and he realizes, I've got to bring her to the witch. And so what does he do? Is he just going to grab her and take her? No, he does this instead. So what is it in our lives that lulls us comfortably to spiritual slumber? Is it comfort? Is it convenience? Is it entertainment? Is it pleasure? I even like how in the scene we watch, she starts seeing images that are foreshadowing. She even sees Aslan there. It would be like the enemy of our soul to even be content with us being distracted by periphery spiritual things to lull us into a comfort and convenience away from Jesus. Mark 4 where it's talking about seeds being sown. Some of the seeds were sown among thorns, and it says this of them, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things begin to choke out the word. Could the letter to Sardis be a warning, not just to a church, a real church, real Christians 2,000 years ago? Could it be a warning 
to Comox Pentecostal Church in 2023. I'm so thankful for the life of our church. I'm thankful for a sense of growth. I'm grateful for all that was accomplished through kids' camps and our church family camp and all kinds of wonderful things that we look forward to in the fall. May our reputation never be about what we do, but about who we worship. Some of us today may be identifying far more with the concerns in Sardis than we'd ever hope. So what do we do? There are three things that the text tells us to do. First is this. Wake up. (laughs) Wake up. I was reminded as I was thinking about this text this week of... um, I grew up with at the sort of the tail end of the Keith Green era. Anybody remember Keith Green? And he had a beautiful song called Asleep in the Light. And here's just a few words from that song. Do you see? Do you see? All the people sinking down. Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb? Not sure if they're come. You close your eyes and you pretend the job's done. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? The world's sleeping in the dark that the church can't just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you can't even get out of bed. Oh, Jesus rose from the grave and come on, get out of the bed. This past week, my dad turned 70. I can't believe it. I'm so proud of who he is and his life. And so I traveled with our kids to the interior of BC to be there for his birthday. And um, the rest of the family was all there. So we were crowded in my parents' home. And so the Bedells, were, we took over the bottom floor, which had air conditioning, so we were thankful. And we slept all over the floor down there. And I woke up one morning and I, I realized the rest of the kids had it seemed gotten up. And it was just me down there. And I looked over to where Jack was sleeping. And I just saw his blankets laying flat there. And then I saw this funny piece of fabric protruding out at the foot end of the bed. And I was like, what? What is that? And I was groggy and stuff. And I'm like, what is that? You know? And so like any sensible person, when you don't know what something is, you touch it, right? And so I reached out and I grabbed it. And upshot Jack right away. (laughs) It was his foot. And he had sunken into the mattress. I just didn't see him, but I saw his foot. I didn't know it was his foot. So we both scared each other pretty good because I didn't expect him to be there. And he had been dead asleep. But in that moment, he was wide awake. He was fully alert. He was ready to go. He was scared. (laughs) He was awake. And sometimes when we've been lulled into a spiritual slumber, you need Jesus to grab your foot and shock you and scare you. And this is the message to Sardis. Hey, you think things are great in your spiritual walk? You think things things are great in the life of your church? Good for you, you built it on the wrong reputation. Guess what? You're not alive, you're dead. You need to wake up. You need to keep watch. Second thing is to repent. So so many words in scripture, unfortunately, get a bad rap. And every time you hear them, you're like, like obedience. You're like, okay, I better obey. 
And repentance sometimes is one of those words. I think one day in our future, we're going to do a series on the bad words of the Bible that are actually great words. Obedience is a great word. Sacrifice is a great word. Submission is a great word. Tithing is a great word. <laughs> I could go on and on and on. And I will one day. Repentance is a great word. It's a gift. Scripture says it's a gift. It's this idea that you can change your direction. Do you know that in some parts of the ancient world, they did not value the idea of change. Things were valued if things could just stay the same from generation to generation to generation. And so in some of the pagan cultures, they resisted change because it was always a threat. But along comes the Christian message, Jesus showing up and the first words of his messages often were, repent. Guess what? Change is possible. You can go in a different direction. You don't have to be stuck in this way forever and ever. It only and always leads to death, but you can wake up and see the world differently. You can move in a different direction. And so you and I today, if you've found, you know, maybe I actually have been lulled into a bit of a spiritual slumber. Maybe I'm busy doing a lot of good churchy things, but I've missed Jesus in the midst of it. Wake up and change your thinking. It's about him. It's only about him. Third, remember. This text calls us, as some of the other letters do too, to remember. And specifically in the letter to Sardis, it calls us to remember two things. Remember what you've heard. And remember what you've received. What do you think the church in Sardis had heard? <laughs> when the gospel is presented to each of these cities. When the word heard is used often in the New Testament, it's connected to this idea of the gospel. You heard the message of Jesus. Friends, if you found yourself in any kind of spiritual slumber, complacency, go back to the beginning. Why did you join the faith family in the first place? Was it just for convenience and comfort? No. It was Jesus. It was him alone. Remember him. Remember his message. Remember. So remember what you've heard and remember what you've received. What might that mean? In scripture, and especially in the New Testament, the word received is often coupled with this idea of the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Could it be that the church in Sardis was in danger of having their flames snuffed out? because they had forgotten the very flame of God, his spirit dwelling within them, resting upon them, empowering them for life of, lives of mission and service in their world. Could they have forgotten? And so Jesus says, remember what you've received. You can't earn the Holy Spirit. You can't do enough good things. It's the generous gift of God to anyone who will follow him through Jesus Christ. I'll come dwell in you, I'll live in you. Remember the spirit you've received. Do you remember in Sardis there was something that was incomplete? What was it? The temple of Artemis was not yet complete. In 96 AD, it had existed for hundreds of years, still not finished. In the ancient Near East, when a temple was being set up and complete, for it to be complete, the final step in getting a, a, a temple ready to be fully operational, was that the presence of the God being worshipped had to live in the temple, had to be embodied in there. And so it was, you know, this ceremonial experience that was sort of the welcoming of the Spirit into the temple. 
And yes, the temple of Artemis was functioning, but it was not yet complete. There was this idea in the people of Sardis. They realized this, this temple's not done yet. I think the church of Sardis is thinking of that when Jesus talks about incomplete. I think they're even thinking about that when he says, receive, remember what you've received. You see, when you receive the spirit is because Jesus said it is finished. And then in John 20, Jesus shows up with his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes on them. And I think they do. And then in Acts 2, the spirit comes in a fresh way. And again, in Acts 4, you are made for the spirit. You are made to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, in 96 AD, the temple of Artemis, Artemis was not yet complete. 300 years later, it still wasn't complete. They still hadn't finished building it. But here's what's interesting. The message of Jesus had begun overthrowing the empires and powers of the world. And so the message of Jesus was filling up what used to be a pagan Roman empire. And so people stopped worshiping Artemis. 300 years after this letter is written, hardly anybody's going to the temple of Artemis to worship Artemis. 300 years later, they started building a church. The site is still there today. It's called Church M is what they call it. You can find a church built where the Temple of Artemis is. Isn't that beautiful? Can you imagine if you were able to go 96 AD and just here's the letter to the church in Sardis and say, by the way, 300 years from now, you see all this Roman paganism going on. It's almost going to be wiped out completely. Everybody's going to be loving and following Jesus. In fact, where we used to worship pagan gods, we'll gather together to worship Jesus there. They would have, they, there's no way they believe it. Think about the gods that seem to be mocking our faith today. There will be a day that the glory of God fills this earth, fills the Comox Valley as the waters cover the sea. It will happen, Jesus has promised it. It will happen. He is the one who's building his church. The letter closes. with a call again to loyalty and a call to remember the work of the Spirit. When the letter opens to Sardis, it's referring to Jesus who has seven stars, which we know that's the seven angels, it's the seven churches are somehow in his hand. And what's in his other hand? The sevenfold Spirit of God. What is our prayer? Oh Jesus, that you would put your hands together that your spirit would fill the church again and again and again and cause us to live. Amen? Let's stand together.